Welcome to Have You Heard? An IDF Podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. In today's episode, we will be taking a closer look at opportunities for young people of color in the fields of science. We will be talking with two experts, one in medicine and one in immunology, to help us gain a better understanding of how to address these concerns and why it matters. All right, let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode, Opportunities for Young People of Color in Science. I'm Katherine Lontock, and my role at IDF is as the Director of Science and Policy Communications. My academic background is in microbiology. I'm excited to be your host for today's podcast episode. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, employment in science, technology, engineering, and math fields, otherwise known as STEM, is projected to grow twice as fast in the next decade as for all other occupations. Even so, a recent Pew Center study reported that only 7% of recent graduates in STEM fields were Black students. That's only half the proportion of the general population that identifies as Black. And the numbers for Hispanic or Latino students are even lower. Here with us to discuss these issues as they relate to PI is Dr. Nicole Rochester, the Consulting Advisor on Health Equity at the Immune Deficiency Foundation, and Alexis Mobley, President and one of the founding members of Black and Immuno, as well as a PhD candidate in neuroimmunology at the University of Texas. Welcome, Nicole and Alexis, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. Um, So to get us started, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your own backgrounds. Um, Nicole, you are a pediatrician who now works as a consultant to medical systems and individuals. Can you tell us a little bit about your career transition? Sure. I am a pediatrician, as you mentioned. That's all I've ever wanted to be since I was like seven or eight years old. And that's all I thought that I would ever be. I um, started in primary care after I finished my training And then I transitioned to pediatric hospital medicine, had the pleasure of being a medical director and assistant professor and got to teach medical students and pediatric residents in training. And my career transition was really uh, inspired by my own caregiving journey with my late father, who had a lot of chronic health conditions, including diabetes and heart disease. And he was an end-stage renal disease patient on dialysis. And for three, the last three years of his life, my two older sisters and I were his caregivers. And it really gave me an inside and like dirt, dirty look into the healthcare system. <laughs> and um, I, it, was, it was very, uh, honestly, traumatic. It was very challenging. One of my older sisters is a nurse executive. And so between the two of us, we had probably over 30 years of medical experience, healthcare experience under our belts. And yet we still struggle to kind of manage my dad's medical care, not the care itself, but really the system right. in which he received care. And what I found over and over again is that my knowledge as a medical doctor, but also my influence and my privilege allowed me to be such a better advocate for my dad. 
And um, as we would navigate those situations, it just made me think about all of the other family caregivers and all the other patients who don't have the benefit of having a daughter who happens to be a doctor. And so after he passed away, I just couldn't stop thinking about the challenges that we faced and the knowledge that most people are facing this without that that inside information. And so my company, Your GPS Doc, is centered around helping patients and family caregivers understand and navigate the healthcare system. And then uh, in the context of that, my work has recently pivoted to health equity consulting, where I've had the honor of working with a lot of healthcare organizations who are committed to improving care for patients of color. Okay. And Alexis, um, can you tell us a little bit about Black and Immuno and how you became involved with that? Yeah. So um, Black and Immuno is a nonprofit organization that aims at amplifying, celebrating, and supporting Black voices in immunology. So we have a very robust program of our second year um, that we're working on. One of them is called the Black and Immuno Hub. Um, But every year we have our our Black and Immuno Week. Our first year, it was just about general immunology. Um, This last session was about um, from bench to bedside to community. Um, And so we talked about not only basic science, but translational science. And then we had um, patient advocates come in and we had people talk to us about public mistrust in science and science communication. Um, So it's a very like robust program um, that we have that we work really hard on. So I'm super glad and you know, super proud of that. Um, I ended up getting involved um, just because I feel like you know, a lot of people around the time that um, George Floyd was murdered, you know, there was definitely a call to action for a lot of people. Um, and so that was the call to action for me. Um, I had said enough is enough and there has to be something that I can do, you know, in my circles to to get involved. And so one of them was definitely trying to bring more Black faces and more Black voices into STEM and into STEAM. Um, and so I started um you know, I had gotten to attend Black and Neuro and I was like, man, you know, I really hope whoever does the immunology one also loops me in. Um, so <laughs> via, yeah, so seriously, via subtweet, I ended up meeting up with Joelle and I was one of the co-founders um, of Black and Immuno. And it's just been fantastic working with everybody. We have volunteers all over the globe. Um, we had attendance this last uh, Black and Immuno week from every habitable continent. So I was also super happy about that. Um, and so, yeah, I just I just love the organization. We work not only with academic institutions, but um, journals and industry and, and, and pretty much anything in the scientific ecosystem, some government um, offices as well. So um, I'm just very happy for the work that we've done so far, some of the networking that we've gotten to do, um, and the people we've gotten to meet along the way. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I mentioned in my opening that the graduation rates for underrepresented students, particularly Black and Hispanic or Latino students um, in science fields, is not representative of their share of the population as a whole. Um, what do you guys think are some of the contributing factors to that? Yeah, um, there's a lot. Um, yeah, I try to, I mean, the only knowledge I can really lean on is my own, right? Um, uh, holy and, and honestly. And, and I think about even my own journey um, all the way back from, you know, elementary school now to almost finishing my PhD. And 
a lot of the bumps I had along the way, um, you know, I, I did have several teachers along the way tell me, you know, I'm not smart. I'm not good enough. You can't do this. You're not going to do anything amazing. Um, and if I would have sat there and didn't have the support system that I had, that would have been the only thing ringing in my head. Um, and so from the jump, I would not have been anything more than that because of some of the words that other people had put on me. I mean, even in higher ed. And so I think part of that is just depending on where you are, depending on what you're doing. I mean, it doesn't matter how great of a place you live, you know, people still want to put that label on you. Um, and so I think it, it really has to deal with the, I guess like the support systems and the voices that you're listening to um, every day and that have a, a really big influence over your life. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with everything that Alexis said. As a physician, you know, I can honestly say that I myself personally didn't face a lot of those types of barriers, but many, if not most of my physician colleagues have so many stories of starting in, you know, middle school, high school, teachers and guidance counselors telling them, you know, oh, you know, they say they want to be a doctor and they're say they're being steered to other healthcare fields. Oh, maybe you should just be a nurse. And nurses are amazing. We love nurses. We need nurses. But there is this phenomena where students of color are told that they may not be up to the challenge of, you know, becoming a scientist, a researcher, a physician. And they're sometimes steered into other healthcare professions or even steered away from healthcare in general. Um, I think you know, a lot of times it, it also matters. Representation is so important. And so a lot of students of color don't see scientists and researchers and physicians who look like them. Again, I'm very blessed in that manner. I live in a part of Maryland that has lots of uh, black professionals. And so I've often had black doctors and you know black accountants and black lawyers and all those things, but a lot of a lot of people don't have that benefit. And so if you're not seeing that in your community, then you may not realize that that's, that's possible for you as well. So I do think that it starts really early and you know sponsorship and mentorship opportunities and internships and summer programs, many of which have lost funding. Prior to George Floyd's murder, we've had this myth in our country that these types of programs are no longer needed. And in fact, there have even been some that have actively tried to dismantle some of these programs that are meant at improving diversity in science, engineering, medicine, technology. So I'm excited to see a resurgence of interest in, in that those types of um, programs and in funding, because I think that's incredibly useful for all the reasons that you mentioned, Catherine. We still have a long way to go. Right, right. Um, and so what are some of the benefits of having a more diverse field of researchers, clinicians, innovators? There are a lot of benefits, specifically in medicine. I can tell you that there are published studies that actually demonstrate that patients of color, particularly Black patients, have better health outcomes when they're cared for by Black doctors. And it pains me to say that. But um, a lot of it initially was attributed to communication uh, between, you know, when, when people look like you and they share your cultural background and they share your experiences, then there is a level of rapport that goes with that. And so a lot of that uh, has to do with just relationships and, and how 
we build rapport with patients. But uh, more recently, there was actually a study that was published last year that even demonstrated some uh, disparities in the birthing mortality for newborns, for Black newborns, and showed that in, in this large study that Black newborns who were cared for by Black doctors had a better outcome. And we can't attribute that to communication or rapport because, you know, they're newborns. They don't right. talk, they don't communicate yet. So that's data that definitely needs to be, you know, there need to be additional studies to follow up on that because as a pediatrician, that was incredibly disturbing to me. Uh, so that's just one reason. I mean, we, we know that Black patients and Latino patients have better outcomes. And uh, we also know that uh, physicians of color in particular are more likely to practice in underserved areas. So that's another reason why having diversity in medicine is just so incredibly important. And Alexis, how do you see that playing out in immunology? Um, yeah, I think it's always important because what's both good and bad, you know, it's a double-edged sword that we have a lot of history in certain concepts in immunology, but it's also bad that we've had such long history and long concepts because people want to say, well, no, that's the way that it is no matter what. And they really want to stick to this idea and not have other, you know, they have the blinders on. And so having more diverse um, understanding and people in your research is going to really inform the research and, and make it more robust because then people can come in with a different eye and a different life experience, um, whether it be, you know, how the disease impacted their communities, you know, it's, it, it doesn't always make sense. Like it's, it's great that the U S is looking at other diseases and we, we have research for things that are not endemic to the United States, but then at the same time, it's also very ill-informed research. You know, you're just doing it kind of for the notoriety. You don't know how that impacts the, the community. Um, you don't know how that affects, you know, the healthcare researchers. And so it, to me, it just feels uh, not genuine when people are like, oh, I'm going to study this thing. Um, it seems just more of like a, a savior complex. But if you're able to get people to come in and say, hey, you know, did you know that this medication really does X, Y, Z? You know, we need to probably think of a different formulation that doesn't do, you know, ABC. And and if you're not in the community or if you don't realize that there's these other things that are impacting these individuals, it, it just doesn't seem like you're looking at the whole picture. And so that's why I think it's always important. Um, you know, even when you work on something for a long time, you know, I'm, I'm in that process right now of writing a manuscript. It gets to the point where I'm like, I need somebody else to look at this <laughs> because, you know, like <laughs> I've like memorized this front and back. I know exactly what I'm going to say. Here's my transition. Um, and so it's just nice having, having, you know, other ideas and other people to look at and be like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and so I think that's that's also why it's important just to have, you know, something fresh and to keep keep the keep a breath of fresh air in the research and, and where you're going and, and how you do your experiments. I just want to add one, one more thing about the, the, the importance of diversity, and it relates to the current COVID-19 pandemic. And what we've seen, you know, in communities of color as, you know, decreased uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine, really due to well-earned mistrust in our communities because of what's been done you know, for, uh, to us, to our communities. And, and that's just another 
reason to have a more diverse population of scientists and researchers and healthcare professionals because we have seen how incredibly important that messaging is when it comes from someone who looks like us. Uh, you know, it's much more likely to be adopted, and so you know we, we're seeing now the what happens when you haven't built that trust, when you haven't had representation, and then you find yourself you know in this crisis that we're in, and uh, there were just such huge gaps in reaching those those marginalized communities and minoritized communities. Right. Right. Um, so when each of you were in school, how diverse were your own classes? And I mean, not just your classmates, but your instructors as well. Um, and did that actually change as you sort of moved up the academic career ladder or stay the same? Any observations? Mm, that's always funny. Um, so uh, both of them, let me start. Well, let me start with saying both of my parents were in the military. Um, so I didn't do a lot of moving, but... Um, this also kind of informs my my story. Um, I, I lived in New York for a while, then I lived in New Mexico for a, a good little bit, and then I moved to Texas, where I spent most of my time um, growing up. And for me, um, you know, talking about my classes, um, for the most part, I remember in elementary school, or I guess the the, the early elementary school. Uh, kindergarten first second in there um, I had a good a, a relatively good representation I would say I mean I remember my best friend um, at the time she was black and Puerto Rican um, and then we had a, a little black boy that we'd hang out with so um, there's at least as I'm gonna <laughs> come to call it but there are, there were at least three pepper flakes there um, and I remember my uh, second grade teacher or maybe it was my first grade first or second grade still in that time um, she was a black woman older black woman um, but I didn't see another black teacher until seventh grade, um, my English teacher, actually. Um, and he was awesome. Um, and then since then, I haven't seen another black um, teacher, academic. Um, yeah. So it's been crazy. Most of my my professors have been predominantly white. Um Probably, I, I never asked. He was he was very racially ambiguous, but um, he at least had melanin. I know that much, um, but I don't know quite you know where he hailed from. But um, he was a pretty prominent uh, biology professor. But I mean, even in higher ed, I mean, even my PIs, they're both white, um, a male and a female, um, and I have one East Asian on my committee. You know, like. <laughs> So like it's for me my my journey has not at all been diverse uh, been diversified I've been the only one in the room um, most times that looks like me um, and has similar life experiences I mean even growing up um, uh, and in high school you know I would I could kind of hang out with the black people but a lot of them were like you don't hang out with us you know they're like we're no, like you're going to go do great things. Like this is not where you should be right now, you know, in this season. Um, and so that was always kind of discouraging because I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> you know, um, so um, it was always kind of that balance of I, I was like too black or I was too white for the black kids and like too black for the white kids. Um, and so that also kind of informed how how my life went and the things that I, I never quite noticed. I guess at the time it was like, oh, OK, you know, this is the norm. I that's all I knew. Um, there wasn't any other 
way that life could be. Um, and so just kind of like growing up now, I, I hear about like HBCUs and um, like a bunch of other things that you could do. I'm like, I'm like, wait, <laughs> there's more black people out here doing stuff. Wait, hold on. <laughs> um, and so that's one of the reasons I, I love a lot of the black in groups because then I could see other people that may have had a similar experience or maybe not. Um, but then I'm like, okay, you know, all of them, I feel like are just like kind of like family reunions, people that I didn't know I was related to, but now we get to kind of come together and geek out and, and share stories and talk about research and things like that. So it, it's, it, it can be interesting, but if you didn't know that there was any different, I mean, <laughs> well, why fight for something if you don't know that it's possible um, or, or being aware about it? So it's definitely an interesting way to kind of grow up, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So, Nicole, you've actually alluded to that you probably had more representation than is sort of the average. Yeah, I, I, I guess I would say so. I mean, interestingly, so I'm going to date myself here, but I am a 1970s baby. And so when I started kindergarten in the mid 70s, I actually was bused to an elementary school in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, so, I, you know, saying that, I like I feel so old. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood in the early part of my um, elementary school years and we were bused to this other school. I will say while my my older sisters had a pretty negative experience with busing. I guess by the time I came around, things were a little bit better. So I actually had a very positive experience in elementary school. Didn't have a lot of Black teachers, but I definitely, there were two Black female teachers that I had, one in third grade and one in fourth grade that were like completely integral. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about not being discouraged. And, and when I really reflect on it, that's probably part of it. I mean, they were so incredibly supportive, recognized that I was quote unquote gifted and you know, fully supported my declarations when I would tell my classmates that I was going to be a doctor and I was going to be a pediatrician. So that was awesome. Um, in high school, I was part of a special kind of a magnet program for science and technology. The, the program itself was predominantly white, um, but the school was actually had a, a very uh, large diversity. We had a lot of uh, black and white students. We also had a large uh, Filipino population and Asian population. So that was a great experience. And so, so while there weren't that many Black students in my particular program, you know, through my general classes and just, you know, in the cafeteria and things like that, I had an opportunity to be around people who looked like me. I went to college at Johns Hopkins University and our class at the time was the largest, um, they had the largest number of Black students that they had ever had. And that seemed to follow me. So then when I went to medical school, it was the same thing. At that time, we had the largest group of Black medical students. I think we were about 10 to 15 percent of our medical school class. So that, you know, it's not huge, but that's close to the representation of, you know, African-Americans in the United States. And we also happened to have a Black dean, like the dean of our medical school at the time was a Black man. So it was really an incredible time to train. My professors, on the other hand, were not Black. I may have had one professor in medical school, and, and definitely we had a lot of teachers who perpetuated these myths. You know, we were constantly taught about all the disparities and Black patients have more this and more that, and but it was put in a context that would have made us believe that there were some type of biological 
differences which we know are not true. And, and back then, I think there wasn't as great of an understanding of social determinants of health. So as medical students, you know, this information was really portrayed to us as, you know, Black people are either like biologically inferior or if they would just do better, you know, eat better, exercise. But myself and my other Black uh, medical students, you know, we were kind of like, I guess, rebels, you could say. So we actually, you know, went to the dean and, and made complaints about some of the lectures that we had at the time and were able to have some changes done. So I guess I think I definitely have benefited from having fellow students that look like me, even if it's a small number, and, and even having some, some mentors and teachers who look like me as well. And that's why I'm just such a huge proponent of this for the generation that's behind me. Right, right. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break and we will talk some more in just a few moments. IDF is seeking new ideas to address three topics that are relevant to the PI community. In an effort to seek new solutions, IDF is sponsoring a white paper challenge and invites submissions to address innovative practices to expand awareness in communities of color, methods to increase equity in clinical trials, novel approaches to shortening the time between diagnosis and treatment. This challenge is open to all individuals, institutions, schools, and researchers for an opportunity to be awarded $10,000 for your project. To apply, please visit www.primaryimmune.org challenge. Welcome back. We are speaking with Alexis Mobley and Dr. Nicole Rochester to discuss the lack of diversity in science and medicine and what we can do to support young people of color interested in these fields. Um, so after breaking down some of the issues that we talked about earlier and explaining why diversity is so important, um, let's talk about what we can do to support young people. Uh, many don't know about some of the scientific advances made by Black scientists and physicians. Um, can you share some of those with our listeners? Sure. So there are, you know, many firsts in terms of Black physicians. And unfortunately, we're still seeing firsts. I mean, I don't know if that's fortunately or unfortunately, but we're still seeing firsts in, in medicine. But I guess if I were to go all the way back to the beginning, I always like to honor Dr. James McCune-Smith who was the first Black American to receive a medical degree. And this was back in 1837. Unfortunately, he received his degree not in the United States because uh, he wasn't allowed to, to do that at that time. Um, but he did go on to later practice in the United States. And then you know, a few years later in 1864, we have Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler, who was the first Black woman in the United States to receive a medical degree and I mean, there's a long list of pioneers in medicine. Dr. Charles Drew, who's known as the father of blood banking and, you know, did a lot of work to uh, re related to like blood preservation techniques, all the things that are used in, in major surgery today. Uh, Dr. Andrea Hayes Jordan is someone who I always like to honor. She's a pediatric surgeon um, and she pioneered techniques for groundbreaking therapies for pediatric cancer for conditions that were previously considered to be incurable. And then uh, most recently, I've been a huge fan of Dr. Uche Blackstock. Mm, she's an yes. emergency medicine physician, but she's like a huge 
DEI champion, anti-racist champion. She's the founder and CEO of an organization called Advancing Health Equity. If you're not following her on Twitter, you absolutely should be. She also has an amazing twin sister, Dr. Oni Blackstock. So I could go on and on and on, but um, there, there are definitely lots of contributions to, to medicine um, on behalf of Black physicians. Yeah, so for me, man, I feel like any Black researcher is a great champion just because I feel like nobody knows we exist. Um, you know, even if you think about flyers or, you know, thinking about what a scientist would be, I, I almost incline that you would probably think of, you know, an older white male um, because it's just kind of what we, we've seen, you know, um, and and people that have communicated with us. I'm, I'm so grateful um, for people like Raven, the science maven. Um, she does a lot of really cool science. Um, and she's a great, um, great science communicator. And she's just always out there having fun. And, and she's absolutely amazing. She's so sweet. Um, I've been able to work with her um, on a couple projects with the Black and X movements. Um, but I mean, I feel like if you see a Black scientist, um, you know, love on them, follow them. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's just um, there's a lot of honestly great research that's happening out of Africa um, as well. I'm going to I'm going to do a shameless plug uh, for Black and Immuno. We record all of our sessions um, from throughout the week. Um, and so I think one great movie video would be our Unsung Heroes panel where we took the time to have people nominate. We had a historian actually come in and talk about historically different, uh, different black researchers and physicians that actually really changed science in different ways and ways that you may not have, um, you know, originally conceptualized like, um, vaccination. Um, you know, that was only brought over because of the slave of, and see, I, I can't remember the dude's name, but, um, his slave was the one that introduced him to vaccination and, and really vaccination on this, on the side of the planet. So it's like without, again, without black people, you know, where, where would you be? Um, and so um, the Unsung Heroes panel, I think it was amazing. Um, just having that history and having other people also nominate um, some of their mentors and friends for the work that they were doing. Um, and then the other thing that I'm gonna um, say here is um, we had a lot of scientific talks from people that were in Africa. Um, talking about COVID and talking about malaria and talking about, um, we've had people that grew up there talking about hookworms um, and things like that. And again, just the work that they're doing, um, you may not realize like, oh, okay, Africa, you know, they, they really want to continue to, you know, disenfranchise and, and, and just strip any advancements that are happening there um, from the continent. But there's some really awesome things that are going on um, and, and things that are, you know, that they're doing um, for infect infectious disease, um, which isn't as important here because, oh, well, we don't get that stuff, but it's, it's really changing the world and, and um, uh, you know, epidemiology as we know it, which is always amazing. So what steps uh, should we be taking to engage and support young people more and at what level? I, I think it starts really early. I mean, we know that, you know, this nurturing and interest in science and technology and, and medicine really starts early. And I can attest to that myself, you know, being a seven, eight year old. And for me, it was really just something that was not only fostered by my parents, but also, as I mentioned earlier, my, my teachers. So I think that we need to ensure that students of color have um, the access 
to appropriate science education. And when I say appropriate, you know, ideally by not necessarily teachers who look like them, although that is ideal, but at least that it's presented in a way where their contributions, the contributions of their people are amplified and elevated. You know, so much in education, the perspective is that, you know, people, students of color really don't often see ourselves in those contributions. Everything is kind of, once a month in February, we learn all the things that Black people did, and then we go back to a very white-centered educational model. And so I think having um, having those contributions being incorporated throughout science education, increased funding in under-resourced schools, which we know because of systemic racism in our country tend to be in black and brown neighborhoods. So increased funding for schools in those in those communities. Many of them don't even have science labs. I mean, science is fun. And but if you don't have like, you know, beakers, if you don't have like the equipment in your school where you can actually conduct experiments and see firsthand what science is and it doesn't really come alive for you. And so I think a lot of times there's this misconception that science is boring or that science is hard. Um, I also think, you know, as we talked about earlier, there, there really needs to be a way to evaluate teachers and the disparities in education, just like now we're finally starting to acknowledge disparities in health outcomes. Teachers need to be held accountable for how they interact with students of color. Um, there need to be reporting mechanisms so that students and parents can report these instances that Alexis and I have talked about where mm -hmm. students are literally being told, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, why don't you consider this? Um, guidance counselors are also, unfortunately, a big part of the problem. So I just mm -hmm. think that starting at a very, really an elementary school, we really need to examine how science is taught to students, how their interests are fostered, how they're being discouraged. And as, as you go all the way through the academic ladder, you know, we just need to continue to improve representation um, so that, you know, there are teachers who, who look like the students and who represent the communities as well. So that's just, those are just a few ideas. Okay. Alexis, anything you want to add? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, like Dr. Rochester said, early and often, um, mm -hmm. you can't, you know, I, I've loved science from the jump and in, in, in all of its different forms. And so that was something that I had known from really little that I wanted to get involved in science. It's just the more science I learned, the more my my field uh, changed, you know, and blossomed into something different. And so I think it's important that, again, if you start talking about different types of science and making it, you know, age appropriate, you'll start getting people interested in, in maybe some of these obscure fields, you know, immunology, biochemistry, genetics, I guess, like, you know, the biomedical sciences, biomedical engineering. And then giving them, again, you know, noticing the history and their contributions, also being able to see yourself um, where you are. Um, I think you can also get kind of discouraged when you when you hear different stories. You know, one of them, the most common is, uh, you know, Watson and Crick and Rosalind Franklin, you know, and right. that's not, that's not, not common, you know, in science. Um, and so it's also like, you always hear these, these stories of, um, you know, 
things being taken and stolen and you know we've already had so much taken and stolen do you do you really want to keep doing that you know the rest of your life so um science also evolving to acknowledge and give praise where praise is due and not just to the status quo and and just by default trusting and believing that mm-hmm. So what is your piece of advice for implementing change at a systemic level? Um, go vote. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, I mean, that's, I mean, at the, at the very basics of it, um, I think the, the thing that really stuck with me as I've been learning in my advocacy journey is that um, you can't really call yourself um, an activist until you've actively changed like laws, because that's where the systemic, um, issues are. And so again, like Dr. Rochester was saying about having more money to these schools, you know, that's based off of your property taxes and you're allowed to go to your school board and you're allowed to go to your city and, and petition so that your taxes are distributed in a different fashion. Um, and that would radically change what we see from, the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. from kindergarten and on, you know, because now people that need the most funding and the most money to really get their education on the same level as the entire district um, would go so much further. Um, and so I would just say, you know, just be aware of different policies and how you can intervene. You know, you don't have to do all of them, but, <laughs> you know, find the one that's important to you, um, you know, and somebody else will take you know, the other things, um, and then really just go and, and try to change something um, and work towards that. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with everything Alexis said, and I just want to amplify what she, you know, said regarding equity and that certain communities are going to need more resources. I think here in America, we kind of pride ourselves on this falseness of equality where like we all have the same thing which is not true or you know i pulled myself up by my bootstraps you can do it too which is not true so i think you know the systemic change that needs to happen is really having that equity lens for every single policy every single structure you know in in our in our community in our in our country and making sure that those who have historically been marginalized and discriminated against they actually need increased resources and increased support and that's okay and so we need to really approach the problem with that lens and i also think you know from a systemic standpoint measurement and accountability are key and so mm-hmm. you know in medicine we are finally starting to um disaggregate data we're really starting to look at health outcomes specifically for black people for latino people you know for native american people and we're discovering these huge disparities. And so I think we need to do that with everything, you know, that every outcome really needs to be measured um, based on race and ethnicity and language and gender identity and, you know, all those, all of the things that tend to separate us. And then people need to be held accountable. It's one thing to publish papers and talk about observations, but it's another thing to begin holding institutions accountable for those disparities. So that's what I'm looking for in the coming years. Okay. Are there any other topics that we didn't touch on you'd like to discuss? Uh, you know, diversify your, your, your friend list, diversify what you're getting involved in. You know, if you, as you're working towards being, you know, anti-racist, 
um, you know, one of the most important things I feel like is just diversify. If all your friends look exactly like you, um, you know, if all your news sources look exactly like you, um, that may not be the best, um, best way to go about life. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of people all over now with social media that's really important. You know, follow one extra person that doesn't like look like you, you know, get your content from a bunch of different sources and, and slowly work towards towards understanding other voices. You know, you can you can only do so much with, you know, maybe your one trophy friend. Um, but, you know, try to try to do some things and, and, and work towards um, a whole a whole different system. Um, and I think that's just important to to also realize and stress. So yeah, follow all of the black and movements on Twitter and find the individual scientists and and go on to the different databases that they have and just, you know, find something new um, and, and look at something different, essentially. That's great advice. Um, do you have any recommendations for resources to learn more about engaging young people of color in science? Other than, you know, I would say for, for medicine, the National Medical Association is our you know, medical association specifically for Black physicians. And there's always a host of programs. There's a Student National Medical Association for, for medical students, and they often have programs aimed at outreach, uh, you know, even for elementary, middle school, high school, at mm -hmm. the college level. So I think that's one organization that people can follow. And just, you know, again, amplifying what Alexis just said about diversifying your network and, you know, social media is an amazing tool. And, and because of the way these algorithms work, which some are a little bit scary to me sometimes, but once you start following a couple of people in a, from a particular community, then it shows you, you know, hey, if you're following this person, you may want to follow that person. And for me, over the last couple of years, that's really been a way that I've been able to diversify my network and, you know, looking at those suggestions to follow. So I think that's awesome. And, you know, just getting involved in your community, finding out what are the uh, community-based organizations that are affecting or looking at STEM mm -hmm. and, and getting involved in your school system? You know, if you are a Black scientist, Black medical professional, you know, volunteering, showing up for like career day and things like that, you know, those things really make a difference, especially in communities where they don't see a lot of uh, scientists and, and doctors and things like that look like them. Um, I know that NSF and the NIH both have um, programs for people that are done um, or, you know, in high school um, and undergrad that need some research experience. Um, again, shameless plug. We have uh, that video also on our YouTube channel. We're working to get the, the emails, uh, the, the PowerPoint slides um, for everybody as well so that we can disseminate you know, more information about some of these paid research experiences um, that you can do. Yeah. Um, and then, like Dr. Rochester said, just volunteer. Um, just the fact that, um, you know, that I would show up to places and do things, you know, um, yes, I look incredibly young. So even some of my child's friends thinks that I'm, I'm her sister. Um, and so um, I'm like, oh, no, I'm her mom. And, you know, just talking to the kids um, and just just being there and saying, oh, no, I do science. You know, that's been so pivotal Just seeing how excited kids are. You know, I didn't have to say more than that. Just like, oh, no, you know, I'm just sitting there reading a paper, you know, <laughs> and like, oh, my gosh, it's a scientist. Look. Um, <laughs> and so it's just, you know, one of those one of those things is just, you know, sometimes just existing is enough. Um, yes. And, you know, you don't you don't have to do 
more than that, um, you know, um, and so just to show up, you know, um, show up in different ways, show up how you feel most comfortable. Um, that's all we need, you know, just show up and be there. So. All right. Well, thank you both so much for being here today and sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, it was so much fun. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for being with us today. The Have You Heard podcast is part of IDF's work to empower the PI community through advocacy, education, and research. Continue to share this information and join us for more podcast episodes in the future as we explore the topics that mean the most to you. Until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, the IDF community is rare and powerful. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at idf.primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.